I'd, uh, I'd like to start off this morning by reading some lyrics of a song, and it's not a Christmas song, and it's probably not a song that most of you know. I'd venture to guess the only two people in this room who know this song are myself and Brandon Sozaby, who is up here on the piano. But I want you to listen to these words. And, and there's nothing profound necessarily about these words. There's nothing overly theological about these words. There's nothing like, great about the precision of these words. But I, I want you to hear these words. And, 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 and let me ask you a few questions. Uh, it, it is a song of praise t- to God uh, written, written by a man, uh, one, of, one of my newfound favorite artists. And he, and he writes this. He says, King of kings, Lord of lords. All the things he has in store, from the rich to the poor, all are welcome through the door. You won't ever be the same when you call on Jesus' name. Listen to the words I'm saying. Jesus saved me. Now I'm saying. Everything that I felt, praise the Lord. Worship Christ with the best of your portions. I know I won't forget all he's done. He's the strength in this race that I run. Every time I look up, I see God's faithfulness, and it shows just how much he is miraculous. I can't keep it to myself. I can't sit here and be still. Everybody, I will tell the whole world, it's him. I didn't, didn't, again, read those words because there's necessarily anything overly profound about them. Um. I'm not suggesting that you Google search the lyrics and download the song. There's nothing profound about the song. But there's something profound about what happened to the man that wrote them. See, this man, even months and years before he wrote this, he was uh, writing hits such as Gold Digger. This, this man is known for some of the most sexually explicit lyrics that we can imagine. I, I, in my attempt to prep for this little intro, I tried to look up some of his more famous lyrics to read, and they just weren't necessarily appropriate. Um, this, this is a man who went on stage and, and kind of, you know, in a joking manner, kind of harassed a young teenage woman when she won an award at an MTV Awards show. Uh, this is a man who posed on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, uh, as Jesus being crucified. This is the type of man that most of us would look at and say, God would not save a guy like that. He's the kind of guy that when he actually did come to know the Lord, I guess it's been about two years now, many people, including myself, were like, uh, is this guy for real? Or is this guy, is this another one of those publicity stunts? At this point, many of you know who I'm talking about, the great Kanye West. I can imagine this is the first time Kanye West has been mentioned in the pulpit at Community Bible Church. Mark it in your notes. But, you know, as, as, as this man came to know the Lord through the preaching of a, a graduate of the Master's Seminary, some unknown pastor that I've never heard of and likely you've never heard of either. He came to know the Lord. He, came to, he was discipled. And the Lord clearly over, over the past few years has shown that this, the Lord has changed this man's life. And he's not perfect. He still says some dumb things. He still does some dumb things. 
but he appears to be devout and he appears to love the Lord and he appears to be growing. And it's just amazing the level of pushback that I saw from the Christian community when this man professed Christ. It's amazing. And we thought, well, I, you know, I, I want to see it first before I, before I believe Kanye saved. He's got to prove it to me first before I think that he's a Christian. You know, maybe that was you. And to a certain degree, that was me. And the reality is, the Bible is full of such people. The Bible is full of such wretched sinners like you and wretched sinners like me and wretched sinners like Kanye West who the Lord in his mercy, who the Lord in his sovereignty, who the Lord in his power, he saves and he changes for his glory. How can we not believe that? How can we not believe that? Because here's the reality. And here's my main point this morning. If you've got your notes, pull them out. Main point. It's simple. Simple point. It's this. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And with that, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 27 through 39 today. And we've got a great, a great section of Scripture that we're going to meditate on. I'm going to preach through today. May God be glorified in it. Please uh, follow along as I read. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and, and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Point one. Point one. 
Jesus saves the unsavable. Jesus saves the unsavable. As, as, we, as we approach this text in verse 27, we see after this, he, he being Jesus, Jesus was, was going out. Jesus was on mission as Jesus was always on mission, as Jesus still is on mission. Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Simple enough. He's out, he sees a tax booth, and he sees a man named Levi sitting at that tax booth. Now, here's the thing we got to understand about a tax collector. Now, we all know that, 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 that tax collectors in the Bible, all, you know, we, they represent um, unrighteous people. They, 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 they're, they're scandalous. But I, I don't think we can grasp how absolutely hated these people were during this time. This was a hated group. These, these were the, the types of, of people that were seen as betrayers of the Jews, betrayers of their brothers, betrayers of their family, betrayers of, of, of the Israelites there. Because they were working for Rome to go collect taxes for Rome. But that's not the worst part. Well, what happened is these, these tax collectors, they would basically make bids for certain areas to work for Rome. And, and basically to say, we'll, we'll, we'll collect this many taxes for you. And the area went to the highest bidder. And so these tax collectors, they would collect, you know, often large amounts of taxes. But the worst part is this, is that these tax collectors would begin to cheat the people and rob the people, and extort the people. They would take far more than they agreed to take with Rome. And ultimately to the point that they were becoming rich off of such a practice. They were becoming rich through Rome, cheating God's people there in the land. People hated tax collectors. They were dishonest. Even to eat with one, to, to, to dine with one, to, to sit with one, to have fellowship with one, to associate with one, would, would, you would be identified as unclean. We, 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 we cannot say enough about how much these people were hated. And here's the reality. They deserved it. It's not like these guys were falsely accused. It's not like we look at these guys and think, all oh, poor Poor tax collectors, you know, they don't have any friends. They're sitting there with their money. They're just, they're, you know, people just think of them in the wrong light. They, they, no, these guys were scumbags. These guys were scandalous. These guys were thieves. They were the most sinful of the sinners in those times, if there is such a thing. No other Israelite would willingly approach such somebody somebody like Levi. They wouldn't. They would avoid someone at Levi, like Levi, at all costs. Wouldn't approach such a sinner. First of all, I don't like him. Second of all, any type of association with such somebody will make me unclean. I will go there for one reason to pay my tax. Do my due diligence and I will leave. 
That's the only interaction I want with such a sinful man. Oh, but friends, Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus comes on the scene. And as Jesus was on his way, he went out and he saw Levi. He saw this broken, sinful, wretched, dishonest thief sitting there in his tax booth, counting his coins. Maybe he just got done with a, with a transaction and he's, and he's organizing his money. He has no friends, but he has lots of money. He has no people in his life, but he has lots of stuff. He has no influence, but he has possessions. And he's just sitting there hoarding it. And Jesus sees him. Maybe he's, he's bringing the chips in close to the table. He's a good accountant. He, he, he doesn't care what people think about him. The only thing he cares about is, is are, are my finances in line? And I don't care who I have to cheat to get there. Jesus sees that man in that moment, and Jesus approaches him. Jesus sees this wretched man in that moment, and he walks up to him. He pursues him. And he calls Levi to follow him. Is that not amazing? Is that not amazing? He calls Levi to follow him. He doesn't say, Levi, you know, maybe go ahead and pay all this stuff back and then follow me. He doesn't say, hey, Levi, you know, maybe a few years down the road, if you kind of start to get your life together and you kind of maybe find a new way of employment, maybe one that's a little more honest and, and you kind of clean yourself up a bit and you get your reputation right, that I think you'd be a really good candidate maybe one day to follow me. He doesn't say that. Jesus, in his mercy, he approaches this sinner in his sinful domain, where he's at in the moment. And he says, follow me. What a gracious, merciful God. What a gracious, merciful God. The type of God that saves the unsavable. The type of God that, that, that calls us out of darkness. He doesn't call us out of like a dimly lit room where we're kind of like in this moment where like, you know, I'm going to kind of put on a, a little bit of light just so I can kind of see, I can kind of clean myself up a little bit before I step fully into the light. He's the kind of God that calls us straight out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's the kind of God that takes us in, in, in the midst of our, our muck and our filth and, and just our dirty garments, and he immediately makes us clean. It's not that we, we clean up our lives before we come to Christ. It's not that we start to be a little bit obedient before we come to Christ. But Christ, when we are rebelling against him, but Christ, when we are walking actively against him as his enemies, walking in disobedience according to the power of the prince of the earth, when we're doing that, that is our natural default. That's where we're going. Christ in that moment calls us. In Christ in that moment, he saves us. It is a work of him. It is a work of his mercy. And this picture here of, of Levi sitting in his tax booth in his sin, sinning in his sinful domain, in the act of it. Christ calls him. It's a picture of you, Christian. 
And it's a picture of me. All of us who are in Christ Jesus, this is us. This is us. Walking as enemies of God. And then God gives us his mercy. Walking as people who didn't desire to be saved. God gives us his mercy. Walking as people who couldn't save ourselves. We were unsavable. We couldn't do it. We couldn't fix our problem. We didn't want our problem fixed. We didn't recognize our problem. We didn't care about our problem. We just wanted here and now to walk according to what we want to walk according to. And God approaches us. God initiates it. God calls us. God pursues and he saves. Praise God. Praise God. Jesus saves the unsavable. Point two. Jesus changes the unchangeable. Jesus changes the unchangeable. We see this in 28 and 29. Jesus calls Levi to follow him. And what happens? Levi follows him. Levi doesn't just follow him. He leaves everything. Do you see that there in, in, in 28? You got your Bible underlined. He, he, he left everything. He left, he left everything. And he rose and he followed Jesus. He, he in, in, in that moment, we, he, for, he forsook his sin. He, he, he repented. And he followed Christ. He closed up the tax booth. He said, enough. Enough of the unrighteous wealth. Enough of, of the cheating. Enough of, of the lying. I, 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 I see Christ here and he's called me to follow him. And I know it's all a work of the Spirit, but I, I will follow him. He changes this man. His, in that moment, it was not about how, many, how much more money can I take from the people. It's I see this man in front of me, and I must follow him. And I can't explain it, but I must follow him. I see his goodness. I, I, I can't explain it, but, but I see that, that he is far more worthy of being followed than this trail of money. He leaves everything. He leaves everything. And he follows Christ. This man is changed. But I love what he does. He, he, in that moment in 29, he, he, he leaves and he follows them. And, and, and the next, it says, And Levi made him a great feast. Mignon, you'd like this. This would be the kind of thing Mignon would do, you know? Levi made him a, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. He makes a feast. He makes a feast. And he brings his friends to Jesus. This man's changed. You see that? He's changed. No longer is, is it like, I, you know, I'm going I'm to sit here, I'm going to hoard my stuff, and I'm going to save my money, I'm going to be shrewd. He brings a feast. He makes a feast. And, he, and, he, and look at this feast. It's not just a feast. What kind of feast is it? It's a great feast. It's not a small feast. It's not a small potluck. It's not, it's not the kind of feast that's like, hey, we'd like to make it nice, but not too nice. You know what I mean? Like we, we want to keep it nice, but we want to keep it on budget. You know what I mean? What we say about every wedding. It's not like that. It's like, yo, we're going to throw everything we got at this kind of feast. There, this is the kind of feast that's worth celebrating. Something amazing has happened. Something incredible has happened. 
Christ has saved Levi. Like, his life is changed. His, etern his, his eternity is changed. J.C. Ryle, in summary, he, he, he makes this comment that like we, we get basically excited about weddings, and we should. We get excited about birthdays, we should. But man, there's nothing in this world worth celebrating more than when a sinner comes to Christ. I mean, amen. And we should be the kind of people, and maybe this is like a vision for the future, but like when we have like a baptism Sunday, Bro, church, let's, let's, let's blow this thing up and let's, let's get excited. Let's throw a feast. Let's throw a party. When sinners come to repentance that Christ has saved people, that's worth celebrating. That is worth celebrating. So let's get on that. But he makes Jesus a great feast. He takes his wealth and he honors Christ in this moment. No longer is it about himself. No longer is it about his glory, his possessions. He's, he just... I was throwing this great feast. Oh yeah, and, and I want to bring all of my other wretched, sinful, despicable friends, all you sinners, you've got to meet this guy. You've got to meet this guy. Does our life look like this? Does your life look like this? Are we living with purpose? Are we living on mission? Bringing the news of Jesus Christ to our friends. Bringing Jesus to our associates. Bringing Jesus to our neighbors. Are we this intentional? Like, maybe we'll have a dinner. Maybe we'll invite them into our home. Those are great. But I'll tell you what's better than just having them over for dinner. Having them over for dinner and sharing the good news of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Having them over for dinner for the purpose that they would see Jesus. That is what mission looks like. That is what purpose looks like. And yes, when they're there, we're hospitable. And yes, when we're there, they will do things that make you uncomfortable. And we can be gracious. Because you know what? I guarantee you, in this moment, in this dinner full of despicable people, sinful, nasty, dirty people, by the way, people like you, amen, and people like me, we aren't better than these people. We aren't better than the tax collectors. If we were sitting at that table, the Pharisees would be pointing the finger at us as well. And you know what? When people like that get together who don't know Christ, it's messy. It's uncomfortable. And if you've been a Christian a long time, some of the things non-Christians say might offend you. And some of the things that non-Christians do might offend you. And some of the things they believe about the Bible and about politics, and about whatever other area that you're passionate about, it might offend you. And your kids might hear it. But you know what? Making disciples is worth it. It didn't, Jesus wasn't afraid of this. Jesus wasn't like, well, you know, I, if I go dine with these tax collectors, I might become unclean. 
If I go dine with these sinners, I might become unclean. No, Jesus understood. I'm going to come in here. I'm going to share the good news with these people. I'm on, I, I, I am on mission. Levi was on mission. Levi was excited. Levi was authentic. When, when, when we look at our lives, again, does this characterize us? Are we having people into our homes that are not a part of this church? Are we having people into our homes who aren't Christians? Think about your neighbors. Think about the people you work with. This is, this is convicting for me because I haven't been great at this. I work with a lot of people who aren't Christians and, and I feel like they feel loved and cared for and, and, and that's great and, and we're able to serve them. Bill and I, you know, we, we're, we're, we're able to serve a lot of the folks that work for us. That's great. But, but I'm thinking like, my home is my domain. And I mean, I've got these, I've got these eight children and that's, that's kind of my, that's, 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 that's my space. We can't have sinners in, in my home. I, I'm just, it's, it's not worth it. And yes, of course, there's a balance between safety and, 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 all, and, and being wise. I get that. But I think there is a point to say, we've got to be people who are on mission and who live this out. And I believe our church is headed in that direction. And here's a biblical example of, of what one man who was saved by Christ looks like. May we follow that example. But see how he's changed. See how this man's changed. And understand that like Levi, that we are the unchangeable, that only Jesus can change. We didn't pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We didn't dust ourselves off. Anything good in us, any amount of sanctification is purely a work of God. Only he can change us by the power of the Spirit. Jesus saves the unsavable. Jesus changes the unchangeable. But then we turn a little bit with point three, and we see that the self-righteous, they miss the unmissable. I might be making up words at this point, but you get the point. The self-righteous miss the unmissable. We see this in verses 30 through 32. The Pharisees and scribes, they make their way on the scene and, and they see Jesus dining with these tax collectors and sinners. And we, we already start to know that these Pharisees and, and these, these experts in the law, they, they were not very fond of Jesus. We'll see that even more next week, so I'm going to kind of lean into that a little more next week, but... Uh, Suffice it to say that they, they weren't already weren't very happy with Jesus. And so they're kind of checking him out at this point. They're kind of even stalking him at this point. You're like, what is what, what were Pharisees and scribes doing, like observing this dinner? Why were they following Jesus around? And, and, and at this point, they look at him and their and their question is, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Honestly, it's a good question. Why would a sinless, perfect, holy God want anything to do with tax collectors and sinners? It's a good question. We'll get to that in a second. But, but we, have to, we have to understand that the, the, the Pharisees and scribes, they were supposed experts in the law. 
They weren't naive of what God's word says in the Old Testament. They, 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 they could quote book, chapter, and verse. They'd even made up their, their, you know, the oral law to, to make sure that they didn't come close to even you know, crossing the line. They were, they were pious about it. They were serious about it. Again, they knew it. But what's interesting to me, again, I think I said this last week, but the more and more I see the Pharisees, the more and more I realize they're really not as much experts as they thought they were. They're not the kind of experts that, that we sometimes make them out to be. They, they might understand book, they might understand, thus says the Lord, but they don't understand the implications or what it means fully. They can recite a verse, but they don't understand what the verse means. If they understood the Old Testament as well as they maybe acted like they did or were treated like they did, they would have understood this, that God, throughout his word, has always shown mercy to sinners. God has always been a merciful God. Maybe they would have read Exodus 34.6 and read, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Or maybe they would have read Psalm 86.15. It says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. If they would have read the word of God, they, they would have understood that, that God was merciful towards sinners. And yes, God is just, and, and there's every bit as, as, as much in the Old Testament about God hating sin and, and dealing justly and swiftly with sin. But, it, but also it talks about God's mercy and God's mercy and God's mercy. We should not be surprised when we see God showing mercy. But the Pharisees also missed this. The Pharisees missed that they were sinners. They would have admitted, you know, we're sinners, we're, we're, we're yeah, we're, we're, we're guilty. You know, the, the same way all of us might say, yeah, I, I, I know I'm a sinner. I, I, I'm a sinner, but, but I'm not that kind of sinner. You know, I, I mean, I know I'm a sinner. I know who am I to judge, but, we always add that button there. No, you are a sinner. You are guilty. Yes, and who are you to judge? Yes. But, but, but in this moment, they're, they're acting as if they are more clean than the tax collectors. They're, they're acting as if they are more worthy of the Messiah coming and dining with them rather than the tax collectors. When in reality, Psalm 14, 1 through 3, which they should have been an expert on, says this, there is no one who does good. No one. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. What do they find? What does God find? They have all turned aside. Pharisee, tax collector, Canaanite, all of them. Jew, they've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And the Pharisees, if the Pharisees were to 
really study God's word, really understand who the Messiah would have been and what he was going to do, and really understood who they were. Sinners, guilty before God, in need of God's mercy. They would have had no problem with the Messiah dining with sinners and with tax collectors. Yet, they thought they were good. And when you see yourself as good, when you see yourself as righteous, when you look at yourself and you say, well, I'm not like so-and-so. Because I don't do the kind of stuff they do. When you see yourself as good, when you see yourself as righteous, naturally, you do not see yourself needing God's mercy. You don't need God. I've got myself because I'm not like them. You know, God's, gonna, God's not going to have time to really deal with my sin, my little sin, because he's going to spend so much time on these guys, the really bad ones. When they don't see the need for God's mercy, they miss why Jesus came. They miss why the Messiah came. They miss it. It's not just about coming and abolishing Rome. You know, the really bad oppressors. And abolishing all those people who are with Rome, like the tax collectors, like the sinners. Those are the really bad guys. Because you know what? When Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes to abolish Rome, we're going to be fighting with him because we're the righteous ones. And we're going to be fighting against those guys. But what's Jesus say? Jesus answers them. He says, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and, and sinners? Jesus, here's why the Messiah came. This is what they miss. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. How many, <laughs> if Jesus calls the righteous, how many would he have found? None. None. There's none righteous. Not even one. Jesus didn't come for a wellness checkup. You know what I mean? Jesus, Jesus didn't come down here and, you know, we're just doing a wellness checkup. You know, you're getting that life insurance policy. And so we just got to do a we just got to do a wellness checkup. Jesus came down here bringing an ICU, an intensive care unit, a cancer ward for the sick and the hurting and the dying. He's the great physician who came to heal those who were sick and who were dying who were dead in their sin, who were dead in their unrighteousness. They, 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 didn't, they didn't need, you know, just a small little vaccine. They needed to be brought to life, being dead in their sin. 
Jesus comes and he comes to call sinners to repentance. You see that? He comes to call sinners to repentance. He's sitting here at this table with sinners. And I believe he's having a good time. And I believe he's hospitable. And I believe he's not sitting there just, you know, I'm just going to sit here until the chance to share the gospel. I believe Jesus was fun to be around. I believe that Jesus was enjoyable. And that he wasn't just, you know, just some stoic jerk. Jesus was great to be at the party with. But he was at the party for a reason. To call sinners to repentance. He's developing relationships with sinners and tax collectors for the purpose of what? Not so they could just feel good about them. Not so he could feel good about himself. Not not so that he could act like he's on mission. But the mission was calling sinners to repentance. There comes a point in our lives with our friends, if we're going to be on mission and we're talking about being on mission, and Matt's been talking about being on mission with our small groups and all this stuff, there's going to be a point we can get together and have parties. And we can get together and do stuff. We can get together and have fun. There's a point, friends, as people, we gather people, as people come and they don't know the Lord, there's a point where we share the gospel and we call them to trust in Christ and repent of their sins. That's the point. The point isn't just to, to build a big group or a big assembly of people who may or may not know Christ. We are on mission, the mission that Christ was on, to call sinners to repentance. And this isn't just, hey, we're calling you to an obedient life. It's calling you to to trust in Christ, to to see that that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is worthy of following, that Christ is is worthy of giving your life for, that that, that Christ is good and that he's holy and and forsaking your sin. It's turning your back on your sin and saying, "I I know I've walked as an enemy of God. And I know I don't have it all figured out. And I know that I, I can't necessarily pick myself up by my bootstraps, but, but I, I, I want to forsake my sin and just gaze on Christ. Repent of your sin. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe as, as, as we're looking through this, you're thinking, wow, I, the Holy Spirit's revealing my sin to me this morning. Re- revealing the fact that I'm in need of a Savior. Revealing the fact that no matter how hard I try and try and try, I, I fail God and I fail God and I fail God and I fail God and I fail God. And I don't desire him. But as I, but as I, but as I look upon his word and, and I see his character and I see his grace and I see his mercy, maybe he could save a person like me. Repent of your sin, friends, and trust in Christ. Put your hope in him this morning. Do not wait. Be like Levi who was there in that tax booth at Christ. He, he pursued him, he calls him, and then he follows him and he changes him. It's the gospel. That's why Christ came. We are like the tax collectors. We are like the sinners. But we can often also be like the Pharisees. When we see ourselves as better than another group or more worthy of God's love than another group, we are like the Pharisees. I've been there. I know you've been there. You think, you know, I, I, I know God would save me, but he, eh, I'm not going to go share the gospel with that person because 
you know, they're that type of person. God wouldn't save that type of person. And I don't want to be associated with that type of person. Who's your biggest enemy right now? Maybe they're on Facebook. Maybe they're part of this church. Maybe they're part of your family. Maybe they don't know Christ. That's the person you should go share the gospel with. That's the person that Christ in his power can save and change. That's the person, type of person that Christ in his mercy, he can save and change and, and not just bring reconciliation vertically, but bring reconciliation horizontally to each other among men. We are often like the self-righteous Pharisees. And if that is the case, then we need the great physician to heal our hearts, to show us his mercy, to show us his grace, to show us that, Lord, you didn't save us because we were likable. You didn't save us because we did a few, you know, activities of merit to earn your favor before you saved us. You saved us out of our sin, just like you saved Levi. May we not think much of ourselves. Point four, the self-righteous accuse the unaccusable. The self-righteous accuse the unaccusable. We see this in 5.33. And they said to him, they being the Pharisees, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Basically here, the, the Pharisees uh, accuse Jesus and, and his disciples of, of unholy living, of a lack of piety, of a lack of zeal for the Lord, of a lack of seriousness in taking serious the things of God. And they, they, in, this, in this spot, they don't exactly point to Jesus, they point to the disciples. But we know students are, are like their masters. Students represent their masters. So if you're criticizing the, the, the students indirectly, you're more criticizing the discipler, the rabbi, the teacher, the master. They were indirectly accusing Jesus. And what's interesting here is they bring up two groups. One, the disciples of John. Two, the disciples of, of, of the Pharisees. The, the, and, and with that, Let's look at first the disciples of John. In, in, in Luke 1, 16 through 17, uh, if, if you remember, you know, Matt preached it a few months ago. Speaking of John the Baptist, his ministry was this. It, sa it says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What's the point? This was pre-revelation of the Messiah. The, the point was that, that John's ministry was that preparing, looking for the Messiah. And this was a ministry of repentance, preparing the way for the Lord. You know, come thou long expected Jesus. That, that's, that's what we're doing here. We're, we, are, we are ready for the Messiah. We're fasting. We're praying. We're recognizing our need for the Messiah. We're praising God that he is about to bring about the Messiah. It was a, when, we, when they fasted and when they prayed, it was for for holy reasons. It was for good reasons, but it was for the reasons of the expecting the coming Messiah to redeem his people from their sin. There was a purpose, an expectation in their fasting, an expectation in their prayers, if, if you were a disciple of John. Pharisees, on the other hand, 
we can look at the, the, the book of Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but we read this. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As, as, he, as he's kind of right here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this point. You must be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. And he starts to refer to them as, as hypocrites. L listen, in, in Matthew uh, 6, 5 through 6, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Then we see in Matthew 6, 16 through 18. That was prayer. Here's fasting. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You got, you got two examples here. You get hypocritical prayer, Hypocritical fasting, godly prayer, godly fasting. Hypocritical, both, to summarize it, hypocritical fasting and praying is to be seen. Thereby, is to be praised for. I want people to see how pious I am. I want people to see how zealous I am. I want people to see how religious I am. For the praise of man, I want to be recognized. I want to be appreciated for, for who I am. Look at me. Godly prayer and godly fasting is all about fellowship with God, dependence on God, communion with God that only God can see. And what's interesting here is these Pharisees, they come looking at Jesus and saying, we are not seeing you do the same types of things that we do publicly. Because we're the kind of guys that, that, that fast and pray, you know, out loud. Because we want people to see it. When we're just trying to be salt and light, are you really? Jesus sees their hearts. Prayer and fasting, for prayer and fasting's sake, was not the point. Communion with God was the point. Worship was the point. De dependence on God was the point. And ultimately, Jesus says this in, in Matthew eleven nineteen. He says, the Son of Man came, he says, this is what people say of him, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They see Jesus showing mercy. They see Jesus befriending sinners. They see Jesus not doing these types of false, hypocritical types of religious acts that people who wanted nothing really to do with holiness and righteousness and wanted really nothing to do with the true, one true God doing, and they accuse him hypocritically of being a glutton, of being a drunkard, of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, in other words, of being unclean. These self-righteous, sinful people accuse 
God in the flesh, of being unclean, of being unholy. Certainly, this man, according to our standards, could not be the Messiah. I mean, I can be because, you know, because I look at the Old Testament, and, and when I look at the Old Testament, I, I see the things that I want to see. And this Messiah, this guy claiming to be the Messiah, could not be the Messiah, because he's not who I say he is. He doesn't bow to our man-made rules. It's, it's interesting. We do know that, that, that fasting ended up being a, a practice that was fairly common among God's people at this time. But it was really only required once in the Day of Atonement. And at this point, the Pharisees had, had come to the point where they were fasting twice a week for piety's, for piety's sake. They make up their own rules. God's word, God's law, not enough. Make up our own rules. And interesting enough, we are often like the Pharisees. When we can attempt to accuse God, when we make up our own man-made rules, our own standards of righteousness, as if his own ways and his own decrees are not sufficient. We see this in the garden, don't we? As Eve said, well, God said, don't touch the fruit. Oh, is that what God said? Or God said, don't eat of the fruit. And with the heart of sin is always often a, a heart of rebellion and a, and a heart of self-righteousness. We thinking we are wiser than God. We thinking that we are smarter than God. Us pursuing the things that, that God says won't fulfill. Well, well, I know that's what you say, God. But you're just not trustworthy and you're just not. I, I'm, that's what we're doing. We're accusing God. We don't trust God. We treat him as if he's not trustworthy, as if he's not holy, as if he's not sovereign, as if he's not who he says he is. That is at the heart of legalism and man-made rules. The problem with legalism and self-righteousness is that it always is hypocritical. It always, sees, always seeks to exalt the legalist. It always seeks to exalt the legalist. I'm going to create my own rules. And my rules are, are going to be all about the things that I'm passionate about. The things that I'm good about, that I'm good with. I'm, these are going to be my soapbox issues. And they might not be biblical, but they're going to be the things that, that I puff myself up about. And that I hold everybody else to the standard. And if you don't meet my standard... Not God's standard. If you don't meet my standard, then you're a tax collector and you're a sinner. And you're unrighteous. And you need to repent. And you need to do the everything that I do. Why? Because my man-made rules exalt me. Oh, but don't worry because I, I know there are like all these other verses that I don't follow that God has called us to. I don't really have a heart for, for holiness and righteousness and love and mercy and compassion. I have a heart for me. 
I have a heart to be made much of. And we can all be there. If you're thinking that you never, ever deal with (laughs) self-righteousness, then this sermon is for you. And this sermon is for me. And this sermon is for all of us. Because we are not just like the tax collectors and the sinners. We are oftentimes just like the Pharisees, seeking to exalt ourselves to our own man-made rules and with no heart and mind for God. The beauty of true obedience, obedience with the right heart, with the right action, is that it always honors the Lord. Alone. True obedience honors the Lord alone. God gets the glory for true obedience. And it brings true joy to the believer as they trust in their trustworthy God. Saying, God, I trust you. Because you're good and you're worthy of following. You're a good God. You've changed me. You've sanctified me for your glory. I I, I can't take any glory for this, Lord. And, And it's a joy. Finally, Point five, Jesus teaches the unteachable. Jesus teaches the unteachable. We're at the point Jesus calls Levi out of his sin. Levi changes, Jesus changes Levi and Levi makes a great feast. Levi brings his friends to meet Jesus. Levi celebrates Jesus and these Hypocritical religious leaders, not understanding why the Messiah came, not understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. They come and they grumble and they complain. They ask him, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus tells them why he came to call sinners to repentance. Then then they accuse Jesus and, and, and they say, we don't see you fasting and praying. We see you eating and drinking and hanging out with sinners. We don't understand it. So in this moment, Jesus teaches them as we finish up here in verses 34 through 38 Jesus speaks of the joy of being with the bridegroom and 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 he asks why can you make wedding feasts fast while the bridegroom is is with them can you? The bridegroom's here. The wedding feast is here. This isn't a time for mourning. This isn't a time for anticipation. The bridegroom is here. This is a time for celebration. This is a time for joy. This, this, this is a time where God is in your midst. You see, the purpose of fasting and fellowship, again, was a dependence on God, looking to God. That was, that's the point. And here, God stands in the flesh in their midst with the disciples, with the tax collectors, with the Pharisees. And they're saying, they are are communing with God. They are speaking with God. They are learning with God. They are depending on God. 
The Redeemer is here. Do you not see that? The bridegroom is among you. Daryl Bach mentions this. He says, the very event that fasting commemorates, the deliverance of God's people, is found in Christ. That's the point. But then Jesus speaks, he's like, so why should they fast now? But, but then Jesus speaks of, of this future day of mourning when, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And he says they will fast in, in those days. Jesus is speaking of his, of his crucifixion. A time of mourning. The, the, fir, the closer Jesus gets to Calvary, the more and more he, he reveals the fact that he would be crucified, that he would be taken from his people. He says in John 16, 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus spoke of his death, but there's also hope in that, isn't there? That he conquered the grave. He rose from the dead and he defeated, defeated sin once and for all. And then, as you look at these, these last two examples where uh, Jesus gives them a parable, Jesus gives him this parable of, of, a, of, a, of a tearing a piece off of a new garment and putting it on an old garment. He says that doesn't make sense. You're going to ruin both of them. You're going to ruin the new garment, and then the old garment's not going to make sense either. And he gives us this picture here of wineskins. You, you, you take you know, the, old, the new wine, and you're not going to put it into new wineskins. Because at that point, the wineskins would break and they'd crack open. It'd be, it'd be a mess. The, the, the wine and the wineskins would be destroyed. And Jesus says this. He gives us these, both these pictures. Two separate things. Both when you try to mix and match them, they don't make sense. It's messy. It's destructive. Jesus says, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. I, I, I believe here, for, for, for the sake of time, that, that Jesus is speaking about the newness of the new covenant. The newness of what Jesus was doing right here. And the fact that many of his people would miss this. They live their lives going to the temple, making sacrifices, obeying the law, obeying what God had called them to do, the feast, everything. Their whole lives were wrapped around. And Jesus was in their midst about to do something new, about to do something fresh. And at times to them would not make sense. But it is something better. It is something glorious. And we know that there were a group of people who wanted to hold on to the old way. We even see this in Hebrews. There's a group of people who wanted to go back to the old way. But Jesus offers something new. Not the temple, not sacrifices, not the law, not priests. He offers himself. The one who would come and fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. Who would come and fulfill all 
that the Messiah needed to accomplish. That he would take our righteousness as the sacrificial, or he would, he would take our sin as the sacrificial lamb. That he would be sacrificed and he would make atonement for our sins. Not because we did anything. Not because we made the sacrifice. Not because we made the initiative. Because God made the initiative in his grace and in his mercy. That Christ would do that. That Christ would raise from the dead. That he would defeat death once and for all. And that God's people would be made holy by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, resting on the finished work of Christ. That is, eventually they'll find out that his spirit would be in them. They would take this heart of stone and, and give his people a heart of flesh. That the law would be written upon the heart that they would obey. And that as the spirit dwelt within them, they would be a temple of God. beauty. But not just that. Not that he just changes us and he he saves us. But for those of us who are in Christ, we have this glorious eternity ahead of us. We get excited maybe when we think about Levi. And we think, wow, wouldn't it be cool to have a meal with Jesus. That would be cool. Like Jesus would save us and we'd have a meal. I just, I can't help but read this passage in Revelation that says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Oh, beloved friends, Christians, those whose faith and hope and trust is in Christ alone for salvation. Friends, those who were in their sin, who were dead in their trespasses, whom God pursued and God saved in Christ alone, not by any work of yourself. Those whom Christ has changed, who's sanctified, whose spirit dwells within you. There is a feast to come where we will be with Christ We will dine with Christ. Not in sin. Not in filthy garments. Not in unrighteousness. There will be no accuser in the background saying, look at God dining with that man. Do you know what he's done? 
Do you know what he said? Do you know what he's thought? Do you know the things that he's done that no one ever saw, but the great accuser sees? Oh no, dear friends. The accuser's put away. The power of sin's put away. The presence of sin's put away. All of it put away as we, Christ's people, will dine in perfect, holy fellowship with God. That is what awaits us. And that is exciting. That is our hope. And there is nothing better than that hope. Nothing. Friends, see this. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And sinner, when, when you trust in Christ, when you repent of your sin, this is what awaits you. Today, repent of your sin and trust in Christ, unbeliever and Christian. Today, see the goodness that awaits us. And may it not lead us to hearts of self-righteousness, but may we see the grace and the mercy of our God. Amen.